The next set of papers on head, neck cancer and lung cancer were reviewed by Dr. Everett Vokes, beginning with a phase three study evaluating induction chemotherapy in locally advanced head and neck cancer. Neil, this is a very important design that goes to an important question in head and neck oncology these days. Both neoadjuvant chemotherapy and concurrent chemoradiotherapy have been shown to increase survival. There is suggestion that with concurrent chemoradiation, you mainly impact the local and regional control, and that with neoadjuvant, you might better eradicate systemic micrometastases. And from that then comes this idea, well, let's give them both. Let's give neoadjuvant chemo and then follow that with concurrent chemoradiation. So HIT et al. from Spain designed a study where the control arm was cisplatin-based chemoradiotherapy alone, and two investigational arms looked at the addition of either platinum-5-FU alone or docetaxel with platinum-5-FU as a triple regimen prior to concurrent chemoradiotherapy using that same regimen. And three cycles of this neoadjuvant chemotherapy were given, followed by standard-dose chemoradiotherapy. Now, the trial has some weaknesses that were not well explained at the presentation, and it has to do with an imbalance in the treatment arms so that the number of patients on the control arm is lower, 128 versus 156 and 155 respectively on the two experimental arms. And the other part that's bothered us in the scientific community a little bit is that early results from this trial were presented at ASCO in previous years that already included survival while the trial was still ongoing. The outcome shows that there is a trend for a better outcome, time to progression, or it's actually statistically significant, hazard ratio of 0.79 and a p-value of 0.056 for time to progression that favors the addition of induction chemotherapy. And time to treatment failure was the primary endpoint, and it showed five months versus 12.3 for platinum induction versus 13.4 for TPF induction. So that favors induction chemotherapy, but again, the chemoradiotherapy arm here does exceedingly poor. And so we would look at this study saying that it continues to support this investigation of adding induction chemotherapy to concurrent chemoradiotherapy, but in itself is probably not yet sufficient to suggest that this should be done as a standard of care. In your own practice outside a protocol setting, in what patients, if any, do you utilize induction treatment? We just completed a study that Ezra Cohen from our institution was the lead investigator on. It's the so-called DECIDE trial, and it asked that same question, where all patients got concurrent chemoradiotherapy as a standard, and then we added two cycles of TPF on the experimental arm. Where our study differed a little bit is that we exclusively allowed patients with N2 or N3 disease. So we wanted to enrich the population for those who we felt would be at risk of systemic failure. And what did you see? It just closed to accrual. So outside of protocol setting, what are you doing? 
I think concurrent chemoradiation is the broad standard. Neoadjuvant TPF is certainly well justified these days. To combine the two, I don't think is a standard yet. So how do you choose between the two? There is no rational way to do that. I would suggest that induction chemotherapy on balance is somewhat easier to tolerate and that a patient with a marginal performance status but still eligible for chemotherapy, somebody with N3 disease or truly advanced nodal disease should be considered for induction chemotherapy preferentially. The last head neck paper I wanted to ask you about was interesting combination of radiation therapy, chemotherapy, bevacizumab, and erlotinib. This is a study that a group from Sarah Cannon presented, and again, you're looking at an interesting study design. In head and neck cancer, we have shown that cetuximab is an active agent when added to radiation or chemotherapy. We have, however, not been able to truly demonstrate a survival advantage in a randomized trial from a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Jafitinib specifically has been compared with methotrexate, and there was no survival advantage. Erlatinib has been investigated in the phase two setting and is active. And bevacizumab can be combined with radiation. We and others have done that. So this is a phase two study where patients received combined modality therapy with these two agents added. So this is a phase two study where bevacizumab was added to paclitaxel, carboplatin, and 5-FU induction chemotherapy, and then both erlatinib and bevacizumab were added to paclitaxel and radiation therapy. These are early data. They look very promising, but they're uncontrolled. And so I would say this is hypothesis forming for future work. It's not yet definitive. Bottom line is, are the cooperative groups, for example, interested in bringing this into a phase three, or are there other questions that are more important? RTUG has integrated bevacizumab into a study investigating it with concurrent chemoradiotherapy. I do think it is worth pursuing. How about erlotinib? Erlatinib, we would have said three years ago, let's investigate it. It's hard to do now when cetuximab is approved and, you know, in two settings based on randomized evidence showing a superior outcome for survival, both with radiation and with chemotherapy. I sort of heard whiffs of interest in the issue of erlotinib plus cetuximab in non-small cell. Has that been considered for head and neck or looked at? I've heard that same interest. I think you could formulate rational hypotheses for it, I'm not sure it's highly practical to do. I don't know if it's vertical or horizontal, but it sort of sounds interesting. Anyhow, let's talk about lung cancer. I thought ASCO had a fair amount of pretty good stuff on lung cancer. This was a good meeting for lung cancer, I agree. What about the update that was presented on the JBR10 study? Very important. JBR10 was a landmark trial that truly changed standard of care because in a single study for the first time it showed a significant survival advantage from the addition of adjuvant vinorelbin and cisplatin. The YALT update last year suggested that maybe the long-term data of such adjuvant chemotherapy would not hold, that you had an advantage early on, say at three years, but that at five, seven years, you would lose that advantage. And they updated this trial, and what they showed was that this advantage is maintained. 
that updated survival with over nine years continues to show a follow-up, continues to show advantage for chemotherapy over observation. So the study reaffirms that a current standard approach as defined presently with currently available drugs should indeed be our standard. What would you consider, I mean, the big ECOG study looking at bevacizumab allows four different cis regimens. Do you agree that those four, and maybe you can comment on what they are, are all, you know, equal or reasonable evidence-based options? Are there any that you would add to that list? And what do you yourself utilize in your own practice? Neil, this is a question that is probably in transformation. It is evolving evidence. If we remember back early in this decade, in advanced disease, and all regimens that we use adjuvantly are defined in advanced disease first, ECOG had a study that concluded four regimens did all the same, and cis-paclitaxel. And they were all equivalent. What happened is that Scagliatia co-investigators did a comparison of cisplatin pemetrexate versus cisplatin gemcitabine that showed no overall survival difference, but introduced histology in that the patients with non-squamous cancers benefited from pemetrexate over gemcitabine. And that study, for one, added pemetrexate as an additional standard regimen that is now also allowed in adjuvant early trials. And for two, it told us that just classifying the disease as non-small cell lung cancer was not likely in the future going to be enough. So right now in your own practice, what doublet do you tend to utilize for adjuvant therapy? We're shifting a little bit. We do look at histology. And I think for a non-squamous cell patient, with early-stage curative intent kind of treatment, we would want to use a pemetrexate-based regimen in the adjuvant setting. How about squamous? For squamous, we would pretty much apply the ECOG dogma and probably give cisplatin docetaxel in the adjuvant setting because it's given every three weeks. And in the cisplatin-based, which may be a little bit superior based on meta-analyses, and in the palliative setting, carboplatin paclitaxel. Let's talk about the paper that was presented looking at adjuvant erlotinib or gefitinib in patients with EGFR mutations. This is a retrospective single institutional trial, and they looked at patients that had been resected at Memorial Sloan Kettering, then analyzed those within that group that had an EGFR mutation And the bottom line was that patients with an EGFR mutation appeared to at least had a numerically improved disease-free survival, and that this is information that can be valuable moving forward. It is very much aligned with larger randomized trials currently being discussed in the palliative care setting, in particular the IPASS trial, that selecting patients in non-small cell lung cancer based on EGFR mutations for gefitinib or latinib therapy may be a good strategy. Where did these patients kind of come from? Were they all treated off protocol? Were they treated on protocol? How did they end up getting these TKIs in the adjuvant setting? 
This was a retrospective analysis, and they were derived from a patient population at an institution that early on decided to utilize these available agents. There's not an implication here that that's a standard approach, just a retrospective analysis of what outcome that approach led to. Yeah, it's always a great way to sort of juice up a meeting when you ask people, okay, what do you do with people in non-smokers, EGFR mutations, you're maybe going to get adjuvant chemo, but are you going to offer them off-study TKI specifically or lotnib? And we get all kinds of different answers to that question. What's your answer? I think now we will get guidance on this from the IPASS trial. As long as you're bringing that up, maybe you can talk about what was presented at ASCO from IPASS, and then we're going to come back to that question for you. IPASS is an important Asian trial that clinically selected patients that would be hypothesized to preferentially respond to tyrosine kinase inhibition, in this case with gefitinib. So these were non-smokers, Asian by definition, or light smokers with adenocarcinoma, and they were randomized. And we should mention it was advanced disease. Yes. This was in patients with previously untreated metastatic disease, and they were randomized to standard chemotherapy with carboplatin or paclitaxel or to gefitinib, so no chemotherapy in first line. And the overall progression-free survival was favorable for gefitinib with a hazard ratio of 0.74, but the curves overlapped. And what these investigators then did is to analyze this clinically homogeneous population of non-smokers or light smokers for EGFR mutation. And when doing so, they showed that patients who had no mutation actually did better with chemotherapy, and that treating that patient, even though clinically enriched by criteria we've believed in for the last five years, that treating that population with gefitinib alone is not good for those patients, while those who had a mutation initially did fine with either chemotherapy or gefitinib out to four months, so indicating that that population probably can be treated with chemotherapy or gefitinib, but after four months, the curves drastically separate, favoring gefitinib because gefitinib can be given for longer and is active and does not have cumulative toxicity, while chemotherapy is stopped after four cycles. This trial gives us guidance. It suggests that clinical selection of these patients is not the way to go, that we do need to look at mutation status, and that when we look at mutation status, a patient who has a mutation could actually be reasonably considered for single-agent gefitinib therapy or for four cycles of chemotherapy followed by maintenance gefitinib chemotherapy. Now, they also looked at EGFR copy number and protein expression. And the copy number was also a favorable biomarker, but in their analysis, largely overlapped with EGFR mutation. And it looked like the protein expression wasn't that helpful. Yes, correct. So I thought what their data suggested was the best test to do is EGFR mutation. Fish might work and immune histochemistry is not specific enough. Okay, so now let's go back. We've talked about this. 
What about this issue, again, in the adjuvant situation off-study? Obviously, there are trials looking at this question, but what about off-study if you know, for example, the patient has an EGFR mutation? I think if a test is done on a surgically resected patient, then the standard would still be to give that adjuvant chemotherapy, and I would do that. I would then have a personal discussion with that patient to say there is evidence that a patient with a mutation in the stage 4 setting can benefit from gefitinib. We don't know how this translates into early stage disease, but the biology suggests that it might be of benefit. What about this paper Mark Sosinski presented looking at incorporating BEV and Erlotna, which we were talking about before with head and neck, into induction chemoradiation therapy? Mark deserves a lot of credit for actually being able to complete this study. The addition of bevacizumab to radiation in non-small cell lung cancer has not been overall an easy story. Several studies were closed because of toxicity. Mark's data suggests that it is feasible with very close monitoring and selection of patients. Of course, the study is non-randomized, and so we don't really know whether there is enough to truly advocate that approach. I think bevacizumab is being looked at in a cooperative group trial. Is that correct? Bevacizumab is being looked at, but pretty much confined to the stage 4 setting. What about the paper that was presented looking at maintenance pemetrexa? That was one of the most discussed lung cancer presentations at ASCO. Maintenance chemotherapy has really come to the forefront of interest in recent years. Just for background, in general, there were early in this decade, Mark Sosinski and others looked at this, studies that looked at cycle number, how much chemotherapy should our patients get. And by and large, there seemed to be a plateau of benefit somewhere around three, four, up to six maybe cycles that could be given. To some degree, that's counterintuitive. So we have a disease that is not cured, a patient who has not progressed yet. Why are we stopping treatment that may be holding the disease? But the data suggested that just giving more of the same would not lead to a benefit for those patients. So the question then has come, well, could we continue treatment with something a little bit milder? It might be a third drug. It might be one of the two drugs given with the initial doublet that would be continued. And there were indeed hints for docetaxel that there could be a positive effect. And in recent years, there have been more such studies. In fact, three were presented at ASCO, one looking at very mature data from hemotrexate maintenance therapy, and two, looking at the addition of targeted agents. Now, specifically, the pemetrexate trial had been presented last year, was updated this year by Chandra Balani, and looked at patients who received four cycles of standard chemotherapy. The regimens were not defined or restricted to just one, and then either placebo versus pemetrexate. The study was large. It was a two-to-one randomization with about 440 patients on the experimental arm, the addition of pemetrexate, and 222 patients on the placebo arm. And mature data showed that the progression-free survival was improved with a hazard ratio of 0.6 
and a highly significant p-value. That I don't think is a surprise. You're comparing treatment versus no treatment. So progression should be increased if the drug is active. But overall survival was also positive with an intent to treat population showing a hazard ratio of 0.79, a statistically significant p-value, and numerically the median survival was 13.4 versus 10.6 months. This benefit was, as you might expect, restricted largely to the non-squamous cell patient population, that group of patients where pemetrexid is active. Now, the study has been criticized, and the main design issue that is brought up is that on the placebo arm, what did patients get when they progressed? Now, 67% of them did get post-study therapy, so that is not a bad number and quite comparable to what we know from the literature, but only 19% of those received pemetrexid. And so the experimental drug was available to patients on the experimental arm, but not usually to the patients on the standard arm. And that is the one area of controversy surrounding this study. Now, do we know that it was not available or maybe the patients are too sick? The patients were probably not too sick because 67% overall got the treatment. It may be that the drug was not available in some countries. I don't know that, but certainly the study did not make the drug available to those patients. And I think that you could argue, as some have, that that would have been a cleaner approach to study this. What do you think the practical implications are to docs in practice, particularly in the patient who maybe is going to get chemobevacizumab, which is not what happened in this study? Yes, so those are the issues we're trying to sort out very much. What is now the standard? Nasser Hanar gave a very nice discussion on this, and there were other debates during ASCO about the issue. And I think as a field of clinicians and investigators, we are still sorting through this. Many patients do appear to benefit from some continuation of treatment, be that pemetrexid, it might be in an EGFR-positive population, gefitinib or latinib. And I think increasingly this is less going to be dictated by a strict standard. It's four cycles and then nothing. And if you had bevacizumab, you continue that. If you got cetuximab, you continue that because that's how flex and the ECOG trials respectively were designed. And increasingly, it will be a discussion with the patient that there may be benefit, particularly in a non-squamous population, to giving pemetrexid or maybe switching to pemetrexid. And like I said, for patients with a mutation, the consideration of giving erlatinib. What about the Saturn study? Saturn is a study also looking at maintenance therapy. It's a double-blind randomized phase 3 trial looking at maintenance erlatinib versus a placebo. So it is a non-bevacizumab chemo basis, four cycles of platinum doublets, and then randomization to placebo versus erlatinib. Progression-free survival is positive with a hazard ratio of 0.71, and at 12 weeks was progression-free survival 53% for erlatinib versus placebo 40%. And if you looked at primary analysis, progression-free survival median, it is 12.3 versus 11.1 weeks. So this suggests that progression-free survival 
can be positively influenced with the addition of erlatinib. A analysis looking at EGFR mutations suggests that this is particularly pronounced in that, albeit small subgroup of patients in this trial, of 49 patients. But we don't have survival data and should wait for that before considering this any further. This is very similarly also true for the ATLAS trial, which had an identical design overall, the difference being that this was a group of patients also receiving bevacizumab, so it's chemo-bev followed by bev versus bev-erlatinib. And here, too, you have a positive progression-free survival that is statistically significant with a pending overall survival analysis that the investigators stated would be expected for the second half of this year. What about patients who we know do not have EGFR mutations who get chemotherapy or chemotherapy bevacizumab? What about the idea of bringing in a maintenance erlotinib in those patients? I think we would really need to see survival data that support that, Neil. The IPASS trial suggests that Certainly, as a primary treatment, that strategy is not good. Whether it could be beneficial as a maintenance strategy in that specific subgroup, I think we want to see based on survival data.